0: Chapter 4 of Out of Death's Shadow This is a LibriVox recording. All of LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Out of Death's Shadow by Nicholas Carter Chapter 4 The Flight of Leonard the finding of Madame Ree's brooch in a locality in which John Dashwood had last been seen introduced an element into the case that deepened the mystery surrounding Dashwood's fate. She, as well as Gabrielle Leonard, had been on the wharf the preceding night, and there was the disappearance of the boat. Had she stolen it, or had it been stolen by Gabrielle Leonard? And if murder had been done, who was the murderer? Before attempting to answer these questions, Nick purposed making certain investigations, and having still others made for him. When he returned to town, the inquest was over. It had been short, as there were but few witnesses, and these had given testimony directly in point. Gabriel Leonard had testified that Philbun had robbed him and that John Dashwood must have discovered the robbery and confronted Philbun with the proofs. For on his visit to the office the night before, witness had found Philbun's desk open, the books spread out, and the false entries marked. The autopsy revealed the fact that death had resulted from the taking of prussic acid. The file was introduced in evidence, and the druggist who sold the poison testified that Philbun was the purchaser. Meeting the chief of police, Nick told the story of the missing boat, and asked that men be detailed to make inquiries about the river, north and south. Boats were already patrolling the river looking for floating bodies. Having disposed of this matter, Nick found a car, and in half an hour was at Gabriel Leonard's house, near Forest Park. He had counted on finding no persons at the place but the servants, and was well pleased when the housekeeper informed him that Mr. Leonard would not likely be home before 8 o'clock. More than four hours away. He will probably return with Mrs. Dashwood, she said. For early this morning... He sent a telegram so that she take the 10.35 train from Chicago, which will arrive here at 7.24. Is there any news of Mr. Dashwood, she added, her motherly face betraying keen anxiety? No, but we must hope for the best. How does Mr. Leonard take his son-in-law's disappearance? Nick had seated himself in an easy chair on the veranda and the housekeeper had followed suit he left so early this morning that i didn't have much chance to talk with him he was very pale and greatly disturbed in mind he scarcely touched his breakfast loss of sleep probably accounted somewhat for his appearance suggested nick carter i don't believe he slept at all said the housekeeper did he come in late this question was asked without eagerness in order that the good woman might not suspect that she was being pumped. I don't know what time it was, but it was after three o'clock and not long before daylight. What kept him up, I wonder, said Nick, as if to himself, and not for the benefit of the housekeeper. Must have been worrying over the Philbon matter. Yes, yes of course, unless... Looking up at the woman as if the thought was of but little importance, yet had been suggested by ordinary curiosity, unless he told you it was something else. I asked him where he had been all night, replied the housekeeper, wholly unsuspicious of the detective's design, and he said that he had been trying to find Luke Philbon, who had robbed him of a large sum of money. Did he seem surprised to learn that John Dashwood had not come home? No, he said that John would probably turn up all right. And yet he went off to wire Mrs. Dashwood. That shows, does it not, that he must have feared that harm had come to his son-in-law, and that he concealed his feelings in order not to alarm you? That was the act of a considerate man. There was no hint of sarcasm in tone or voice or expression of face. The housekeeper took the remarks as Nick had meant them to be taken. Yes, that must be it, she said, with a sorrowful shake of the head. For he knows that I think the world of John Dashwood. A finer man never lived. Nick nodded his head in approval. Then he said, I want to write a letter so that when I go back to town, it may go out with the next mail. I have used Mr. Leonard's desk before. Will you permit me to use it again? Certainly, Mr. Carter. You know the way to his rooms. Go right up and help yourself to whatever you may find there. The detective mounted the stairs to the second story and entered Gabriel Leonard's den, as he called it, which was one of a suite of three rooms, But he did not go to the writing desk, but passed on to the bedroom. Everything was in order from bed to closet. The housemaid had been there, and had done her work well. Nick found nothing in the room itself to arouse his interest. But in the large closet, he paused several minutes. At Leonard's office in town that day, the detective who never allowed the slightest thing to escape his notice, had observed that, though it was of the same color, cut, and texture, the suit of clothes the manufacturer was wearing was not the same one worn the day before. In the closet the suit of yesterday was found. Nick saw nothing out of the way in the appearance of the coat and vest, but the trousers were stained with clayey mud. In the hip pocket, a discolored handkerchief was sticking out. Nick examined it to find a number of large dark red stains. They were not blood stains, but the stains of some mineral substance. A curious light came into the detective's eyes as he examined them. Replacing the handkerchief in the trousers' pockets, he left the closet and went into the den. The writing desk now engaged his attention. The pigeonholes contained letters and bills. These were examined to be replaced with a shake of the head. All the drawers except one were unlocked. Nothing in the way of evidence was discovered. With his picklock appliance, he speedily unlocked the last drawer. Large envelopes filled with documents met his eye. As he inspected them one by one, his astonishment became so pronounced that he found it hard to repress an exclamation. In one envelope were two letters. The first read as follows. San Francisco, May 15th, 1904. Gabriel Leonard. My last letter, written over six months ago, remains unanswered. Does that mean you defy me? I should be sorry to believe that you decline to recognize my claim. Perhaps you are not fully aware of the nature of the proofs which are in my hands. Let me inform you that in the case I have against you, there is nothing lacking. I have not only photographs, original documents, and court transcripts, but a number of letters which you wrote before you had in contemplation the offense which you afterward committed. I write thus guardedly of my proofs in order that the truth may not be guessed at by any third party into whose hands this letter might chance to fall. This is my last appeal to you. If, on receipt of this, you do not at once notify me by telegraph or letter that you are willing to treat with me on a cash basis, I shall come to St. Louis and either invoke the aid of the law there or, but I will not threaten you. You know how you stand, and what you deserve. If I were in your position, I would give every dollar I possessed in the world rather than let the public know what matter of man I am. You have deceived the good people of St. Louis for many years. If you hope to deceive them to the end, come to my terms. Otherwise, a grand smash The state prison, infamy, and a dishonored grave. Cora Risi. That must have stirred Leonard up a little, said Nick to himself. Yes, it did, for here is a copy of the answer he wrote. St. Louis, May 20th, 1904. Cora Risi. Madam, you seem determined to crush me. You are not willing to wait for my death, which cannot be far away, for I have had serious heart trouble lately, and the doctors give me no encouragement, but wish to strike the blow at once. But for my daughter, I should say, strike and be hanged to you. But her interest might be considered, and therefore I say, come to St. Louis, and I'll try to make a satisfactory settlement with you. I am certain that a personal confidence will be better than a discussion of the matter by letters. I dare not say with a pen what I would say to you orally. If you conclude to come, advise me in advance so I may meet you on the arrival of the train. Yours, G. Leonard. In another envelope was a statement showing that Leonard had some weeks before pledged all his stock in the manufacturing company. The last envelope contained fifty one dollars notes on St. Louis, Chicago, and Kansas City banks. In Nick's pocket was the list of the notes which Luke Philbin had stolen. The detective drew it out, and when comparison had been made, he saw that all the numbers of the notes found in Leonard's desk were to be found on the list prepared by Philburn. The conclusion was irresistible. Gabriel had received the stolen money from John Dashwood. He had retained five thousand and had given fifteen thousand to Cora Risi, alias Madame Ree. Cool reflection told the detective that there might be a flaw in this theory, for it would involve murder, the murder of John Dashwood. And why should Gabriel Leonard murder John Dashwood to obtain $20,000 when the $20,000 was his own money when he could obtain by the mere asking for it? There was something yet to be unearthed. The mystery was deepening, a crime had been committed, and Gabriel Leonard was implicated, how seriously the future might disclose. The stains on the trousers indicated that Leonard had been in the mud of the river's shore. But he might have been there, he might have gone off in the boat, and still be innocent of the death of John Dashwood. But the stains on the handkerchief? Here was a problem of a different nature. It suggested something that increased the detective's gravity. Something that seemed to connect itself with the statement that Leonard had pledged all his stock in the manufacturing company and, therefore, might be practically bankrupt. After he had replaced the envelopes with their contents in the drawer and locked it, Nick went downstairs. There was no one in the hall. Under the stairs was the telephone. Nick went to it and called up the office of the chief of police. At the conclusion of a talk that lasted over a minute, he hung up the receiver and walked out to the veranda. He hoped that the housekeeper would not come out, for he wanted to postpone a certain explanation until circumstances should force him to make it. As luck would have it, He was not disturbed until more than half an hour had elapsed. Then arrived the chief of police and the chief of detectives. Nick spoke a few words when they came up and then led the way to Leonard's rooms. There the evidence which Nick had discovered was shown to the local officers. The trousers, with the clay mud and the handkerchief, together with the envelopes found in the drawer of the desk, were taken possession of by the chief of police. As the officers were going downstairs, the housekeeper came into the hall. "'A matter of business,' said Nick, in an offhand manner. Mr. Leonard will understand.' "'But I don't understand,' spoke the good woman. "'I can't explain now,' said the detective gently.' All I can say is that we are acting in the interests of Mrs. John Dashwood. Sorely perplexed, the housekeeper saw the three agents of the law walk away. One hour later, at the suggestion of the great detective, the river in front of the wharf was dragged. Nick, expecting yet fearing that something would be found, that would substantiate a theory that pointed to foul play, watched the diggers with painful and yet with eager interest. The space upon which the work was being performed was not large, and before darkness set in, the something was brought up from the muck of the river. It was a section of two-inch water pipe, about two feet in length, and heavy rust had shown when the mud had been removed. Rust and something else, something that spoke of a bloody deed. Adhering to the pipe, under partly detached wafers of rust, were human hairs sticking with a substance that was not rust, but which Nick knew, without analysis, was coagulated blood. The chief of police was present when the iron pipe was brought up, and his superficial examination caused him to come to the same conclusion that had forced itself into the mind of Nick Carter. There has been murder done, was the chief's comment, and this is the instrument of death. We must drag further for the body, though we may not be able to find it on account of the swift current which has been running for several days. Yes, that should be done. Nick would have been better satisfied could an expert's analysis of the stains and the evidence on the iron pipe have been obtained before the arrest of Gabriel Leonard, but there was danger in delay. Leonard must be arrested before he reached home and discovered the loss of the incriminating articles. Two detectives with Nick, were at the Union Depot for an hour before the arrival of the Illinois Central train from Chicago. But Gabriel Leonard did not appear. Among the passengers who alighted from the train was a tall, handsome woman with large, trustful gray eyes. One of the detectives knew her and pointed her out to Nick as the wife of John Dashwood. She was pale, but composed. There was nothing in her manner to indicate that she had been expecting to meet anyone. And yet she must have come on from Chicago in response to the telegram sent in the morning by Gabriel Leonard. At Nick's request, the detective who knew her walked forward and accosted her just as she was entering the spacious waiting room, on her way to the broad stairway leading to the street. Good evening, Mrs. Dashwood, he said. Can I be of any assistance? Perhaps you are looking for Mr. Leonard. No, I met him at Madison a little over an hour ago. He won't be home until morning. Nick Carter heard this statement with deep disappointment. Has Mr. Dashwood returned? Mrs. Dashwood was now the questioner. I, I don't know. Perhaps you will find him at home, the detective hurriedly replied. I hope so, she said with an attempt at cheerfulness. My father said Mr. Dashwood was away on business, and that all sorts of silly stories were afloat, and that I must not believe any of them. I am sure he knows, don't you think so? she asked, with an appealing air. Yes, of course, he is the best authority. The detective saw her to a carriage, and then rejoined Nick. Before fifteen minutes had elapsed, The wires were hot with instructions to officers along the line of the railroad from East St. Louis northward and in towns off the road to arrest Gabriel Leonard, whose full description was given. That's all we can do tonight, said the chief to Nick. Of course, Leonard won't turn up in the morning of his own accord. I don't think he will, and yet... The detective did not finish the sentence, but sat apparently studying the pattern of the wallpaper back of the chief's desk. "'You don't put him as a fool, do you?' queried the chief. "'Anything but that. This is a most peculiar case, however, and surprises are likely to occur.' "'About that analysis,' he said, to give a new turn to the conversation. "'Will it be ready tonight?' "'Yes,' I gave a hurry order. In a short time, the report, made by an analytical chemist and physician, was before them. The stains on the handkerchief taken from the pocket of Gabriel Leonard's trousers were found to be rust stains, and the rust was reported as identical with the rust on the section of water pipe. Also, the hairs, brown and silky, upon the pipe were affirmed to be hairs from the head of a human being, while the substance which assisted in making the hairs adhere to the rust of the pipe was, beyond question, human blood. All this looks bad for Leonard, remarked the chief. Yes, it does. I think I can figure the thing out, Nick. Leonard is in a bad way. He is shy of money. Maybe he has been speculating and has eaten up all his ready cash and all the money he could raise on his factory stock. On top of his pecuniary troubles comes this blackmailing demand of Madame Marie. I can't guess what the secret is, but it is a sure gamble that she has got a stranglehold on Leonard. She demands money and fixes last evening as the time for payment. Leonard, not having been able to scare up the wherewithal, comes to the office in the hope that he may find enough money in the safe to stop the woman's mouth, for a while at least. He discovers that Philbun had robbed him, but has not run off with the money. John Dashwood has it. The amount is more than enough to square the madam's claim. He starts out to find Dashwood being informed by the note left on the desk that Dashwood has gone to Luke Philbon's house. When near the house, he sees Dashwood, who has been down to the river looking for Philbon, who, not being at home, may have made his way to the river for the purpose of ending his life. Now, what follows? Here is my idea of what follows. Leonard killed Dashwood to get the $20,000 and threw the body into the river, which may not reveal its secrets for a week. Why should he murder Dashwood? Because, Nick, Dashwood, upon the request being made, refused to give up the money. It is very probable that Dashwood knew that Madame Marie had been dogging Leonard. Let us assume that he had seen them together, had overheard some suspicious words. If he had known that they were acquainted, had suspected that a criminal secret existed between them, he must have formed some decided opinion respecting the woman's presence in front of the factory building that night. Therefore, he would refuse to hand over the money to Leonard. Angry words may have passed. Dashwood may have mentioned Madame Rie's name, and men have become devils upon less provocation than Leonard may have received. It is certain that murder was not contemplated when Leonard went out to seek Dashwood. The crime was committed on the impulse of the moment, the weapon picked up on the wharf on which they were standing when the conversation took place. And it was Dashwood who was killed that night, for he had brown, silky hair. Now, What do you say to all this? I say, said Nick solemnly, that Gabriel Leonard never murdered John Dashwood. End of chapter 4